Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 958. On this week's episode, we begin with Jay Jaffe welcoming Buster Olney, ESPN senior writer and host of the Baseball Tonight podcast. Earlier this month, Buster wrote a piece called What We've Learned from Early Hall of Fame Returns and Whether Their Release is Good for Baseball, in which he discusses things like Ryan Thibodeau's ballot tracker and its impact on the game. Jay invited Buster to the podcast to get deep into that subject as well as other things, like why Buster no longer participates in hall voting, the hypocrisy surrounding the character clause, and the current state of baseball's lockout and lack of communication. We also hear about the evolution of accountability among the voters and how important that is and should be. I find it astonishing that you have a, a union of a brotherhood, a brethren of, of journalists who are somehow voting that they don't want transparency. That has always <laughs> blown my mind. Like, I, I would wish that the Baseball Writers Association leadership would go to the Hall of Fame and say, look, if we're going to participate in this process, not only do we want transparency, but we insist upon it. <laughs> right. In the second half, David Lorelow welcomes 27-year-old outfielder Rhett Wiseman, who David first spoke to a full decade ago. Since then, Rhett has been drafted twice, won a championship with Vanderbilt in 2014, played in the national system, and most recently reached free agency. The pair talk about the outfielder's baseball journey so far and just how challenging the minor league experience can be for so many players, especially the ones that didn't go play in college. Rhett talks about things like the need for a minor league players union, the pros and cons of the CBA, his own entrepreneurship, and some of the amazing baseball players he's been on teams with, including Juan Soto. I've never played with anybody like him in my life. He is, without a doubt, the most talented hitter I've ever seen. He's a freak. Whether it's his front toss routine or his early work routine, his batting practice, everything that guy does is just different. He's never working on mechanics. He gets in the cage, he does one drill, and then he does his flips. He does not miss hit anything in BP. He does not miss hit anything in, in, in front toss in early work. The guy is not human. <laughs> and on top of that, he's like the greatest guy. He really is. But before we get to these segments, I must suggest to you to visit the Fangraphs.com shop. We not only have our shirts and hoodies and mugs, but of course our ad-free memberships. Buying a membership for yourself or for a friend is both the best way to browse the website and to help support us in everything we do. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. For Fangraphs Audio, this is Jay Jaffe. It's Hall of Fame election season, with the results set to be announced on January 25th. Against the backdrop of the current lockout, it's been a contentious election cycle, particularly with a quartet of controversial candidates, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa, and Kurt Schilling, in their final year of eligibility, and Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz in their first. The topics of performance-enhancing drugs and the character clause have loomed large, and at times the din of the debate has been overwhelming. Earlier this month, ESPN's Buster Olney penned a piece asking about whether this prolonged discussion and the daily drip of ballot reveals is good for the hall and the electoral process. I took issue with a couple of Buster's points, and after a friendly exchange on Twitter, it seemed natural for the two of us to continue our conversation on a podcast. With me today is ESPN senior writer and host of the Baseball Tonight podcast, Buster Olney, whom I've been reading for... Uh, longer than I've been writing about baseball, uh, which is which is to say a long time. Buster came to my attention back when he was uh, covering the Yankees for the New York Times, and uh, 
Uh, he's been at ESPN now for a long time. We've crossed paths uh, in conversation once at a Pitch Talks in Toronto in 2016. So uh, it's really great to have him on the show. Welcome, Buster. I appreciate it, Jay. Yeah, I follow your work all the time and, uh, you know, love everything you've done with the Hall of Fame reporting. And uh, so, yeah, this is fun. This would be fun. Yeah, thanks so much. So what I wanted to talk about mainly, uh, as you know, but uh, our listeners may not, is uh, earlier this month on January 6th, I believe it was, Buster uh, wrote a piece. It's called What We've Learned from Early Hall of Fame Returns and Whether Their Release is Good for Baseball. And it's about Ryan Thibodeau's ballot tracker and the way that that has changed the Hall of Fame uh, election season dialogue and the pros and cons of that. Um, Buster and I had a, had an exchange on Twitter that was, uh, uh, I think, stimulated this uh, further discussion here. Um, I'm going to read a couple of uh, passages here uh, just to give you the flavor of where we're going, and then, and then uh, we can talk about this here. Starts off, at its conception, the Baseball Hall of Fame was meant to be a shrine to former players and their achievements. But over time, the Hall's election process has become one sport's most reliable sources of vitriol, with the tabulation and dissection of individual ballots dragging on for almost two months, an often angry debate further stoked by social media. And then, further down, he writes, It's possible that this gradual bloodletting has drained some of the joy out of what is supposed to be a celebration. So, Buster, I think when I when I read this, it occurred to me that it seems like you're addressing a lot of things here that seem to me like they're coming together in a perfect storm that can make the average bystander. And I think now you're you would might consider yourself a bystander because you 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 no longer actually vote for the hall, even though you're qualified to throw up their hands in despair and say, oh, I can't I can't take it anymore. <laughs> would that be would that be fair to characterize it or yeah for sure and you know and then it comes out of a lot of conversations of course with writers who do vote and watching the evolution of the process I, I never you know the first time I voted I think it was in 2002 or 2003 and how much fun it was and then in the last you know six seven years in particular as we've gone along in this process and Ryan Thibodeau whose work I admire you know it's it's tremendous and it's detailed to the degree that you and I as we sit here today talking we pretty much know because of Ryan who's getting in the Hall of Fame we pretty much know where the the numbers are going to land but I do wonder if knowing how the sausage is being made is necessarily a good thing for the conversation right right and I you know I and I think I think it's a fair question to ask because the 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 process has changed so much I actually started covering uh, Hall of Fame elections at my blog, the Futility Infielder, back uh, that was the 2002 election, in fact. So I, it probably would have been then, I guess, the first one you're voting in. And then Baseball Prospectus invited me to do something uh, for the 2004 election. That was when I came up with the system that that soon was renamed Jaws. And uh, uh, so I've seen how how this how this whole conversation has changed, how advanced statistics and social media and grassroots outreaches have all played their part also the the uh, uh, the changing electorate um, with the uh, sunsetting of older voters uh, uh, no longer uh, active uh, within the BBWAA and the emergence of um, I guess what we would call outsiders like myself uh, who have um, you know made inroads into the industry without coming up through the newspaper system and it, it, there's and then, of course, obviously, the the entrance of uh, PED-linked candidates, performance-enhancing drug-linked candidates, which, 
you know, began when Mark McGuire hit the ballot, uh, yep. at least in terms of, you know, the, the way that we all understand it now. Um, you know, I think arguably we can we can point to amphetamines as being PEDs as well, but uh, that was that was never a factor in anybody's uh, uh, Hall of Fame ballot deliberations. So it's really uh, it begins with McGuire, and you see uh, the uh, the use of the character character clause as as uh, a way around um, voting for these guys who you know quote unquote have the numbers for 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 Cooperstown, but. You know, there's uh, any one of you know number of reasons to suspect that they're not that their numbers are not as authentic as as uh, uh, we would like them to be. So it, there's a lot going on here, and I think it, it struck me first of all that the a lot of the vitriol I think just stems from this pretty you know controversial set of ten year candidates that you know in Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling and Sammy Sosa that have this. You know, collection three of them are PED linked. Everybody but Schilling, and Schilling is, you know, a a, uh, a force of self sabotage that uh, uh, the likes of which we've never seen in a hall in a, in a hall election. And I think it feels to me like like a lot of this vitriol is specific to those debate. You know, the debates around them, and you know, the polarizing nature of their personas. You know, as much as as much as their careers. I completely agree with you, and I experienced this. My mom passed away in the spring of 2006, and in the December before that, uh, I cast, uh, it was the first time McGuire was on the ballot, and my mom yelled at me when I told her that <laughs> I was voting for McGuire. Uh, she was appalled, and I kept on saying to her, look, you have to keep this in context, and you know, in subsequent ballots, I would vote for uh, I voted for Bonds, I voted for Clemens, uh, I voted for Rafael Palmero. Uh, and you're 100% right. Um, the sort of the the inclusion, uh, the graduation of those steroid era candidates really changed the Hall of Fame conversation. And so I think that, you know, where that led us to in this moment with Ryan's great work is that every time a writer posts his ballot, you know, beginning in early December through the month, <laughs> you get this absolute deluge of response right. if someone votes for the, the steroid guys, for lack of a better way to describe them, or not. And that, that's where the, I see is the bloodletting takes place. And I sort of pose the question, and I believe that it probably would be better if the voting uh, were handled like the baseball writers handled their major awards, which is they turn their ballots right after the end of the regular season, no one's allowed to talk about it. And then in one fell swoop, we find out in mid-November who wins those awards as opposed to this gradual drip, drip, drip of each right. ballot, which illuminates all those things that you just mentioned. Yeah, I think it is interesting, the contrast between the way that, that the BBWA does its, does its annual awards, MVP, Cy Young, et cetera, with the way that this plays out. But, you know, part of this is the is the Hall's own doing. You know, it used to be as recently as 2016, the deadline to send off ballots was December 31st. It's been that way for as long as I can remember. I don't know if it's ever been different. I haven't researched it that, that closely. But it used to be that the, the results were announced the first week of January. Mike Piazza and uh, Ken Griffey Jr. were elected on uh, Jan or announced on January 6th, 2016. And it's only in the elections since then have has the announcement slipped into later January, generally the last week of the month or or, or uh, you know anywhere from the 21st to the 26th year. And that's the halls doing more than anything else. And I think I was told at one point that it had to do with scheduling the hotel 
ballroom for for the press conference, the post-election press conference. But I don't know if that's true. I may be conflating that with something else. But the hall has created this extra slack. And, you know, we're at the deadest spot of the baseball calendar. Um, there's no awards to be given out. There's no pitchers and catchers reporting yet. We're waiting for free agents to sign. This year, of course, we have we have a lockout that's grinding things to, a, to an even uh, more extreme halt. And the hall has just sort of expanded to fill this space. And, and really, you know, nobody's changing any minds right now. We're just all throwing spitwads at each other. You're right. And, you know, when the, I think, I mean, look, the Hall of Fame initially, I'm sure, included the writers because they knew that this was a vehicle for drawing attention to it. And look, when I first started, uh, uh, you know, following the Hall of Fame voting, this would be something that would just absolutely ripe in late December, early January as transactions slow down to write a Sunday column about it. That's the habits of the writers. And so when you see the, you know, folks like Peter Abraham writes a Sunday column for the Boston Globe, et cetera, at some point they're using one of their Sunday columns or one of the columns during the week where they're going to say, here's my ballot and and, and here's why I do it. But (laughs) that didn't have the jet fuel that uh, social media has provided for this now especially in in the last uh, 10 years or so. And, and certainly, you know, this is part of the reason why everyone is so uh, interested in Ryan's research. Yeah, I think it's I think in general my my read on this and it's tough to separate, you know, the you know, the aforementioned vitriol from from all this, but I think, you know, and I think this goes back to this is also applicable to the annual awards. You know, the BBWAA has has made a strong effort towards transparency and accountability. I'm not sure how far back it goes, but the you know the publication of every single voter's ballot with the awards, you know, in, in, introduces a level of transparency and accountability that wasn't there before. And you know, most uh, you know the vast majority of ballots gets published either before or after. I think it's 83 percent last year. There was a vote taken at the winter meetings a few years ago. Uh, where 88% wanted it to be mandatory like it is for the awards, but the hall refused to allow that. They wanted to give voters cover if they didn't want to to vote or if they didn't want to have their ballots published. And it's, it's still that way. So it's, it's still voluntary. But I think in general, the, you know, the accountability and the transparency have, have served, have served the, the voting body well. You know, yes, you still you're, you're always going to catch the 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 heat and the negativity on social media for you know when you, when you do publish your ballot because like you said, there's always somebody's always going to disagree with something. You you know either you're you're celebrating the cheaters or you know you're being too strict or whatever. But I I, I like I like that pe- that voters will explain their thought process. I think it shows that there's not unanimity on how to handle the steroids issue or how to handle other character issues. You know, which have I think become part of the conversation as well, and and you know we see writers grappling with well, you know, is, should a domestic violence allegation be you know a disqual disqualifying? I mean, because that's certainly probably in most cases more serious than any doping allegation. We've seen that play out uh, in an unprecedented way with the candidacy of Omar Vizquel this year, who's already down forty something votes tracking closer to 10% after getting above 50%. So I think this process, uh, you know, it's it, it's scary. Uh, I, I know from publishing my own ballot, I mean, I did a virtual process, a virtual ballot uh, every year. Um, and it would always get some attention, you know, when it came out. And even when I was, you know, just uh, going through the motions of it to show writers, you know, to show uh, readers how, you know, where my system leads and, 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 and the difficult choices any voter has to make. But 
boy, you put that ballad out there and it's just like, you, you, you know, you, you steal yourself for the worst and, and, and the worst definitely shows up. I mean, people come out of the woodwork to, you know, call you every name in the book. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and a couple of the points you made, I, uh, you know, Derek Gould, a great beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, he was on my podcast a week ago or 10 days ago, and he mentioned about the accountability and how he felt like that, you know, since Ryan began publishing and, and drawing attention to the individual results as they, uh, you know, were posted by writers, that that has ratcheted that up. And I posed to him, I said, look, one good thing is, I don't think, and, and I'm curious because you know a lot more about the Hall of Fame voting than I do. You know, that's the, the center of your work. I, I mentioned to him, you, you're right in this regard. Mariano Rivera probably doesn't get it voted in unanimously if not for that. Uh, Derek uh-huh. Jeter doesn't come so close if not for that. Because I, I do think it's, it's put writers uh, on the front burner, so to speak where it's like, you better back up what you're saying. One other point he's going to make, though, you're right. I find it astonishing that you have a, a union of a brotherhood, a brethren of, of journalists who are somehow voting that they don't want transparency. That has always <laughs> blown my mind. Like, I, I would wish that the Baseball Writers Association leadership would go to the Hall of Fame and say, look, if we're going to participate in this process, not only do we want transparency, but we insist upon it. <laughs> right. Like, I think yeah. they have an obligation to do that. And one of the things I was going to mention about the character clause, which you're 100% right with your timeline, and I think it's so important that when Mark McGuire's name hit the ballot, that was really the first time that the character clause was, was anything but obsolete. You know, maybe it was in play for Fergie Jenkins because he'd had a you know a minor drug bust at some point. Right. But for the most part... That wasn't even in play, and I always kind of chuckle at that, that the character clause has now become such an important part of this conversation. And as you know, the belief is that the character clause was formed by Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was a segregationist. <laughs> right. How am I going to take moral lessons from Landis if he was keeping the color line in place? I, that's that's kind of that's kind of my feeling about it. Uh, right. Especially. And sorry to interrupt, but... The baseball writers themselves booted Kennesaw Mountain Landis out, right. kicking him out. You know, their major award, the MVP that uh, his name had been on, they took that off. And yet, yeah. we, every year, we see a, a lot of voters following the words of a character clause, which was obsolete for 60 years. And now, that's the those are the operative words from a guy who probably didn't have a lot of character. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and to underscore that, I think also, you know, when we talk about the extent to which it's been used against players, why wasn't it used against Bud Sealing, who got, I think, yes. 15 out of 16 votes in the, from the from the ERA committee when he was elected? I mean, he participated in collusion, you know, which is one of the biggest scandals in, in baseball history, and then, of course, was presiding over this whole mess and, and – and you know, arguably, could have done more earlier. And you know, I understand that you know, it's a it's a players' union. All this stuff has to be collectively bargained. It's it, you know, it's not uh, uh, something that could have been done unilaterally. But you know, he's you know, it, it, it's tough to point to that character clause and feel like it's been being used fairly and uniformly. I try to avoid it. You know, with my ballot, I sort of made the ex, uh, you know, even when I when I ex, when I excluded Kurt Schilling, you know, it's the grounds that I don't want to participate in honoring a guy guy who to me presents a legitimate danger of have you know if if his platform is enlarged because he's spouting conspiracy theories and calling for martial law i mean that that 
I don't think anybody, I don't think even Judge Landis foresaw that as being a factor in Hall of Fame elections. So we're sort of in this unforeseen, unforeseen ways that uh, a candidacy can kind of leak outside of, of the boundaries uh, of baseball. Well, and, I, and I'll personalize it for you. Okay, so, and I, I wrote an editorial about this for the, for the New York Times in 2006 as the Mitchell Report was, was taking off, which I thought, I mean, I think you would agree with me, it was a joke. Uh, they yeah. had no chance of actually getting real information. The, they didn't have subpoena power, and they wound up throwing, what, 86 names to the mob when they knew that the yeah. problem involved thousands of players. And, you know, the former Senator Mitchell took $20 million or whatever the number was. It was a joke. Oof. But the character clause doesn't apply to the, the Spink Award for writers. But should uh. writers like me who covered this era and who did a lousy job in covering this issue, as I wrote about in that piece, yep. how I feel I like it blew the story, should we also, should we probably, yep. you know, anyone who covered the sport in 1990s, other than, uh, for example, Bob Nightingale wrote pieces about PDs in 94, 95 for the LA Times. Besides that, there weren't a lot of people who got to the heart of that story. Should we also be eliminated? I, I think it would <laughs> right, be right. fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I do remember that piece. And I and I think even in, in my book mentioned that as, as, you know, a significant point in the, uh, you know, accountability of the writers and, and whatnot. And I think it's in the book. If it's not in the book, it's in one of my articles. But but that that did strike me as, as being, you know, a pivotal recognition, because as I say it, you know, there's especially when, you know, when I make out my ballot, virtual or actual, I'm using the introduction of testing and, and penalties as kind of a dividing line between the Wild West and the testing era. And what came before, I call it a complete institutional failure. I think yep. those may have been your your words as well, uh, or, or, or words to that effect. I mean, you know, owner, commissioner, players union, media, fans, everybody had a part in that. The fans were cheering. Uh, the writers were vilifying Steve Wilstein, who who found the Andro in in McGuire's locker. You know, you shouldn't be snooping like that. He was called out for that by fellow writers. I mean, there's just there's just so much you know so much blame to go around that pinning it ent- entirely on the players, you know, is is uh, just seems to be to be way off base. There's no doubt about it, which is why you know my stance in the, up until the time I stopped voting was that we desperately need to keep all of this in context. Uh, right, right. of the times, you know, for example, and I always feel every year when we talk about Bonds and Clemens, look, I, I don't, you know, they made their choices uh, and they're having to answer for their choices. But let's face it, they get more scrutiny merely because they were the best players. There literally were thousands of players, major league, minor leagues, college, who, you know, college players, minor leaguers who are trying to get to that spot who were doing the same thing. And these guys got scrutiny merely because they were the best. There are already players who've been voted in the Hall of Fame who took steroids. And everybody in the industry knows it, which is why when I see writers doing, you know, the logic pretzel <laughs> to say, you know, I'm not going to vote for this guy because I think that he, oh, stop. Um, we don't know exactly who did what. And so why not defer to... Uh, you know, Major League Baseball and the Hall of Fame and, and let them determine who are members in good standing. Right. You know, Bonds and Clemens are members in good standing. Alex Rodriguez is a member in good standing. They, uh, you know, had employment contracts with teams. The Hall of Fame put them on the ballot, unlike right. Pete Rose, who has never been yeah, a member yeah. in good standing. And so stop doing retroactive morality yeah, on yeah. these players and just 
you know, just pick the best players because they don't know, the writers don't know who did what. Yeah. And they have to remember the context. Yeah, I agree. And I think that 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 is really the crux of it. So you don't need we don't need to run through your your ballot because you have, like you said, taken yourself out of this uh for the last several years. But so you you had Bonds and Clemens on when they when they when they were candidates. Would would the uh the positive testing guys would you overlook Manny Ramirez's uh suspensions and Alex Rodriguez's suspensions uh if you had a ballot, or is it a, a hypothetical that you have opted out of as well? Yes, I would have voted for them. And, I, you know, I got I, I think I got to put in the qualifier with Alex. I worked with him on Sunday Baseball for four years. I really enjoyed working with him. You know, we are friends. But I would vote for them because I got to a point with the whole question of, you know, who should you consider, who should not. What I mentioned before is I, it, it look, you know, if Alex Rodriguez can have a, a working contract with the New York Yankees in retirement, if Barry Bonds and Roger right. Clemens are, can have working contracts with the Giants, the, you know, the Astros respectively, then you know what? Then I'll let that go because the, the Major League Baseball and the Hall of Fame have in the past discerned between members in good standing and members not in good standing. And so I just... At that point, I figure if those guys are in good standing, then I would just simply get down to the numbers and say, I'm going to pick the best players. I think that makes it simple, a much simpler equation for the writers as opposed to trying to guess between who used and who didn't. Because I think you would agree with me if you've had conversations with anybody in baseball, there are a handful of guys who've already been voted in the last 10 years who you just, it kind of makes you laugh. Like, how is it that Bonds and Clemens get scrutiny and these guys didn't? Uh, right. They're kind of, to me, like, you know, it's almost like no man's land in World War One, where you're wondering, how did that guy get across without getting hit by the, you know, the, the right. machine gun controversy over this when everybody in the sport knows they probably used? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we do have, and I, I uncovered research on the, you know, when I was doing my research on the candidacies, but both Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza are on the record as having admitted to using Andro uh, at a time when it was still legal. Um, so, you know, McGuire era. And I think that hindered their elections, but obviously didn't stop them. You know, Piazza would have been a first ballot guy, uh, I think, under most circumstances, although the, the 2013 ballot was a cluster like no other in terms of the uh, the volume of, of strong candidates. But yeah, there are other guys that I think we could, you know, quite rightfully, you know, raise our eyebrows about uh, both before and after. Like you said, how did, how did they get across? And it's it's naive to assume that we haven't already uh, uh, seen, you know, multiple ones go in. I know it was the the point as far as as far as the um, being in good standing. Um, it's worth remembering that the same writers, you know, maybe not exactly the same, but the same voting body that is wringing its hands about recognizing Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens now um, gave Bonds MVP awards even after uh, the Balco story broke. That's a great point. And I mean, you know, we recognized him then, and yes, it was specific voters, and it was you know still a a, a vote and a process and. Uh, you know the, the the tide has turned as we've as we've learned more about this, but you know it seems kind of disingenuous to to pretend that that suddenly you know we've we've got the you know we're the gatekeepers that should be keeping Barry Bonds out when we're the same voting body that gave him seven MVP awards. So yeah, and that would I and I, I must say that that also when when we begin to have questions like that as journalists and this is part of the reason why I stopped voting you know the number one reason was because I felt like that the hall of fame was angling some of the 
rules choices, reducing the, the ballot years from 15 to 10, yeah. uh, rejecting the idea that Derek and others have had about a binary ballot, a yes or no, on these candidates, which would allow the players to be judged on their merits rather than trying to squeeze them onto ballots. Those were the primary reasons why I, I began or in the ballot limit of 10, which yeah. seems so arbitrary and, and was kind of ridiculous. But I also think when you start asking questions like that, then you it's important to ask the question, should the writers even be participating in this as journalists? And I it I never was comfortable with the idea right, that right. I was making news. And that's especially when right. we got into the steroid era candidates. That's what it's become. You are making the news. You're not reporting it. And that's not a great place for a journalist to be. Yeah, I, I understand that. Now, so uh, were you uh, like allowed to vote when you were at the New York Times or had you not reached your 10 years yet? No, I was not. Uh, I, that was uh, I reached my 10 years, I think, right after I left The New York Times. Uh, when I was okay. at The New York Times, you were technically not allowed to vote right. you know, for any major awards. And when I moved to ESPN, which was in the summer of 2003, that's when I began to vote. Okay. So it all that all that all kind of coincided then for you because I was going to say you know I know that the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and a few other outlets don't allow their you know their qualified writers to vote, which would have been you know which is strikes me as a, a convenient way out and and many of them do point to that as a, kind of a point of pride like I'm you know I'm not making the like like as if they had made the decision themselves um, as opposed to grappling with it like the rest of us do you know, one, one way or the other. So here's a question for you. If you could re-engineer this, how would you do it? I mean, in, you know, every, everywhere from like, who should vote on this? How many years should they get on a ballot? When should the announcement be? I, you know, I, if you've, if you could brainstorm an, a, a way to do this, how do you think that would play out? Well, first off, I would not, if I were the BBWA, I would not want to be involved in the process uh, for the reasons that I stated before. Uh -huh. But I will tell you that no matter what group they come up with, it's going to be imperfect. <laughs> you know, people will right. say, well, <laughs> just let the Hall of Famers do it. No, that's not good either. You know, Joe Morgan. That didn't, wor that didn't work at all in the 2000s with the Veterans Committee. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I think of the, you know, the letter that Joe Morgan wrote, you know, to the greatest second baseman of all time. Uh, to writers uh, a few years ago where he talked about, you know, the, the Hall of Fame is sacred. Uh, you're like, mm, come on, dude. It's it's a baseball museum. <laughs> it was a little too House of the Holy for me. And yeah. as you know, you know, the player's perspective changes. Bob Gibson talked about how he may have, have uh, if, if, he, if PDs were available when he played, to be honest, he said, you know, maybe he would have done that as well. You know, people have talked about, you know, maybe staffers should vote. I'll never forget when I was uh, working at the San Diego Union covering the Padres, how Sporting News at that time did the Gold Glove Awards. And, and so they asked their correspondents, and I was one of those, to go into the clubhouses and ask coaches to, you know, for their ballots. And literally, Jay, this is how the conversation, when I went into the room, uh, you know, I handed the ballots out, and one coach says out loud in the room, hey, um, who's a good second baseman? And somebody oh would God. say a name, and then everyone else would go, yeah, 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 that's a good one. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and so, oh, so it was very loose, and that's the reality of it. You know that as well as I do. Some people will take it very seriously. Jason Stark, my good friend, boy, he, he just absolutely agonizes over this process, and some aren't going to take it that seriously at all. 
So I don't think there's right. a perfect uh, group. I would say I totally agree with uh, with Derek's idea of a binary ballot, yes or no. I think players, I absolutely believe this, uh, that you know players like Jeff Kent have suffered from the fact that they haven't been able to be judged on their own merits merely right. on how many candidates have stacked up on the runway like jets on a plane. Yeah. You know, that, uh, you know, as these guys like Bonds and Clemens kept on being held over year after year after year, that, you know, guys like Jeff Kent suffered. And I think that stinks. And it's a big reason why I stopped doing it, because I felt like it's not fair to the players. It's not respectful mm-hmm. of the players and what they did during the course of their careers. That would be, you know, for me, the number one change uh, to yep. go away yep from the, the rule of 10, which is ridiculous because why 10? Why not nine? Why not 12? <laughs> yeah, that's a question that, that uh, I was on a committee chaired by Susan Slusser that asked that. It was around, I think it was uh, late 14, early 15, and it took the hall, I think, over a year to get back to us. Right. But we, you know, we, we, we realized that they weren't budging on 75%. They weren't budging on the five-year waiting rule. It seemed, and they, and, and I think, this was before they had trimmed the 15 years to 10, but we asked them to expand to 12, which is a pretty lukewarm request to ask of the Hall of Fame. You know, when you consider that you were talking about uh, uh, 10 slots for, for players on 16 teams when this began, and now we've got players from 30 teams, it didn't seem like an unreasonable request. No. Uh, the last year I voted, you know, I left seven players off the, the ballot who I thought were Hall of Famers, um, and that include Kurt Schilling, right. who I worked with at ESPN, uh, who I think is a Hall of Famer, Mike Messina, who I covered for three years, and Tim Raines, right. who I covered for two years, and it felt so ridiculous that that's when I stopped yeah. voting. I'm like, this. the rules are absurd, and, and it was clear that the Hall, in my opinion, that the Hall of Fame was was aiming them at the the steroid era guys. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, you know, if you want, I like Derek's idea. I've talked to him about it, and I think he's been a great, um, set a great example in terms of, account, you know, accountability, and Jason Stark as well. I mean, he's kind of the model for, you know, my geeking out on the Hall of Fame stuff, you know, when I was researching the book, going back and seeing, like, who was doing this before I was? And Jason was, I think, is inevitably the guy I come across of, of you know, kind of stewing, stewing over his ballot and showing, showing the hard choices and things like that. But yeah, the binary ballot I think is a is a great idea. And you know, the real there's a real cognitive dissonance when you say, okay, if I give you this list of thirty names, who are the ten best ball players here, and how different that list is from the ten I wound up with on my ballot because of, you know, self-imposed rules like I'm not going to vote for the guys who tested positive. There are a couple guys that that I think sort of need my help uh, at the bottom of the ballot because I think they deserve their candidacies deserve more exposure. I feel a particular way about relievers. I feel a particular way about starters, even though, boy, we're talking about, you know, a thousand inning gap here. And why am I giving the relievers the thumbs up when I'm not giving the starters the thumbs up? And I start asking my questions like, what am I doing here? What, what, like, how did I get, how did I back myself into, into this corner? And like, you know, I, you know, I've chosen to keep going with it against, you know, my better judgment sometimes, but it really, there, there really are some absurdities 
within this process. And, and it's a very, it ends up being a very Rube Goldberg-like contraption, an individual ballot just to get to us, to get to those final 10 names when you've got more than 10 candidates that, that I think are, are qualified for the honor. And you look back, go, go back, go back to baseball reference and you can see, you know, there are Hall of Fame ballots with 25 future Hall of Famers on them or 20 future Hall of Famers on them dating back to, you know, the 50s or whatever. Um, and, you know, once the Veterans Committee process is played out, and so, you know, asking somebody to, to, to choose 10 or, or criticizing somebody for choosing 10 when you're sending in a ballot that has one or two names on it, you know, it just seems just seems kind of silly. OK, well, I think we've uh, we've we've beaten that horse uh, enough here. And before I let you go, Buster, uh, I know you're 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 as plugged in as anybody here. Uh, and we're, we're in this barren winter where we're awaiting any kind of news about whether there's going to be uh, a season starting on time. What do you think the situation right now is? Are we going to see the two sides come together in time to open camps on a reasonable schedule? I would be surprised, uh, and I'm really concerned. It's the and I you know started covering professional baseball in 1989. It's the most dysfunctional, uh, least collaborative, least cooperative relationship between the union and Major League Baseball that I've ever seen. And the question that I keep on asking people as we go through this process is. Who or what is going to be the the mechanism, the mechanic, who's going to lead these two sides into an agreement? In the past years, you know, when, for example, Gene Orza was, uh, you know, someone who on the owner side, they thought he was too much of a firebrand, but there was constant dialogue. Like there was constant dialogue. And that's what's so different about what's going on now versus in the past is that it just doesn't seem like there's that much dialogue. You know, the last meeting, as you know, on December 1st lasted seven minutes and then it's over yeah. and not a single player yeah. spoke in that. Andrew Miller was the one player who was in that meeting and, you know, it's very possible that that'll change. You know, maybe the the owners who hold the most practical power in the situation, that they will step forward and, and say, look, uh, we gained so much financial landscape in 2016 by the way we routed the players in those negotiations. Maybe we give some of that back. Uh, you know, maybe the, the players uh, who want to deal and are, you know, increasingly become concerned about losing paychecks, maybe they move. I just don't know how that happens. And that's what's a concern yeah. for me. And that's why I think we're going to lose part of the season. Yeah, that's it's discouraging to hear. But that's, you know, the increasing sense that I get. I mean, I thought I, I thought when this started that, OK, you know, if they are doing this lockout, then they're probably just going to end up squeezing you know, trying to squeeze in the off season into a two week period, which will work to the owner's advantage, just because you know players are going to be desperate to to, to sign uh, once once business is 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 back on. But to do that, to to lock it out, say it's a defensive lockout, and then go six weeks without any kind of exchange of ideas, just I you know strikes me as as uh, you know, ridiculous and and and, Shocking. and counterproductive. Yeah, and and I put you know honestly, I mean, I think I I put this more you know almost entirely on the owners and on Manfred for you know for creating this. I think you know yes, the players have to figure out what it is they want to prioritize, but you know they're this is uh, there was no need to lock to to do a lockout. They could have kept a go. You know, they could they could be negotiating while play continues, and. You know, this is this is just this is bad for baseball. This is bad for the sport at a time that that, you know, we're already fretting around about the aesthetic product and about the ground that baseball is losing to other sports and things like that. So 
Whew, it's going to be a long time, which I guess in some ways, I guess I'm glad this, I'm glad this Hall of Fame dialogue gets, uh, uh, gets dragged out because then what else would we talk about? Yeah. And Jay, I'd say this, you know, I agree with you about the owners in terms of holding the practical power. You know, that, that, uh, the 2000 negotiation was such a complete wipeout that that, you know, puts the owners in a position where, you know, they could be, for lack of a better way to describe it, magnanimous, and they could theoretically have more to give back and I'm surprised, as I was in 2020, when we had all the arguments over the season, you know, when they were going to do that in the midst of the pandemic. That was shocking to me, some of the decisions made by owners. And I would say this on the player side, I don't think they've ever done a full reckoning, as they should have, for the debacle was that was their side of the 2016 negotiations. Like I, yeah. And I wrote this at the time. Like It was so bad. And I had agents that night saying, oh, my God, this deal is so bad. I'm shocked that the players haven't had a full examination of how did we blow this. Instead, right. the conversation has been, well, they took advantage of it. You know what? <laughs> there has to yeah. be some accountability there. Because I can tell you this, the refrain in, in the mid-90s always was, okay, well, the union has the better lawyers. It feels like it's flipped. And uh-huh. I, I think it's been incredible. I've been surprised that there's not been more discussion among the players of how can we strengthen our side in terms of the negotiating team. Right. Do you get the sense that the players are as united as they need to be for this? No. You know, Max Scherzer was, uh, you know, he was quoted in an interview with the LA Times a few weeks ago saying, you know, the players are more united than ever from his perspective. I got to tell you, you know, because I talk to players and I talk to agents, I think it's a lot more scattered than that. And generally speaking, mm-hmm. having covered, you know, the 94 strike happened, I was covering the Padres. The next day I was, you know, was in a golf outing with all the Padres players. And the first day of the strike, the players then were far more engaged. They had a, a better understanding, I think, of what the core issues were. I've been really surprised that the union leadership has not drawn in Tom Glavin and David Cohn and Todd Zeal, mm-hmm. names of players who they won these battles in the past. You know, why is Gene Orza right. not in this group to coalesce the conversation? And, I, you know, it might be, uh, you know, Max may well turn out to be right and maybe they hold together. I think that's a concern on the player side. Interesting. Well, hey, Buster, thanks so much for for taking the time to talk to us here about uh, the hall and about the current situation. Really appreciate you carving out some time. Glad we there are things here we agree on. This is uh, not uh, a knockdown, drag out, uh, you're wrong, you're wrong uh, type conversation. And I think we're, we're coming from similar spots here. So really appreciate you coming on. And uh, folks out there can look for your work at uh, ESPN, both uh, your regular columns and also the Baseball Tonight podcast. How many times a week does that run? Uh, during the regular season or spring training, whenever that starts, it would be five days a week, <laughs> okay. uh, every every weekday. Uh, and during this off season, we're doing one a week. All right. Well, good luck with that. And uh, thank you again. Thanks so much, Jay. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Rhett Wiseman, 27-year-old outfielder former Vanderbilt Commodores outfielder and Washington Nationals prospect, and now a minor league free agent. Rhett, thanks for coming on to uh, Fangraphs Audio. Oh, David, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. I know that we have talked since then, but you have the distinction of being the only high school player that I've interviewed for Fangraphs. That was 10 years ago. 
shortly before you were drafted by the Cubs, who you opted to not sign with. You know, does this feel like 10 years, Rhett? No, it feels like a blink. It's it's scary, you know, how much time has passed. And um, to think that my senior year of high school was already 10 years ago, it's crazy. Hey, for old guys like me, where it was a long time ago, it really does seem like a blink 10 years ago. <laughs> really, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about. No, the uh, Rhett, the article that I wrote back in June 2012 was titled, you know, Rhett Wiseman, the Cubs, Vandy, and the CBA. You know, the CBA at that time was brand new, which is largely why you lasted until the uh, 25th round. You were considered a second to fourth round talent, I believe. Yeah. And you know, David, looking back, I, I think that the CBA and... Um, as you know, it was it was the first CBA that that slotted the draft system. So it was the first year in 2012 where teams couldn't overspend on prospects. And at the time, you know, I was pretty upset by that. You know, I I thought that I had a good chance to go in, in the in the you know first couple rounds and get a huge signing bonus. And then with the new CBA, first year starting in 2012, they changed that, right? They, they eliminated tons and tons of money from the draft, created a slotting system that would penalize teams for, for overspending, which hurt prospects like me. But in the grand scheme of things, all that it did was make my decision to go to Vanderbilt so much easier, which, which turned out to be the greatest blessing of all. No, you went on to to earn a, a business degree at Vandy, I believe. So with you know that background, what do you think about things like CBAs? Well, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I, I would have hated the CBA, right? I mean, I, the way I looked at it 10 years ago was, wow, they just came out with this new collective bargaining agreement in the year that I'm supposed to get drafted. And it's just taking taking million dollars out of my pocket, right? It's taken all this money away, and now I'm probably not going to sign and this and that. But then looking back, the CBA was the greatest thing that happened to me. I know there's a lot of controversy around the CBAs, and, and you look at kind of the state of baseball right now and this lockout that we're in because there there can't be good negotiation tactics in, in negotiating a new CBA, but obviously I think, you know, they're necessary for the sport and um, they do protect a lot of times the players if they're done the right way. Do you ever wonder, Rhett, what might have happened had you signed out of high school, you know, be it with the Cubs in, you know, the 25th round or if the CBA was different and you would have signed with any other team in, say, the second or third round? You know, David, I, I used to think about that and now all I think about is is how how grateful I am that I didn't sign the the three years that I spent at Vanderbilt were three of the best years of my life where I met friends that I'll have forever where all we did was win it felt like you know a national championship in 2014 the all-time SEC record in wins in 2013 and uh, you know a national runner-up in 2015 I, I don't think that you can be more successful in college baseball than that in the toughest division to play never mind all the all the other things that that we went through as a team and the growing and the learning and and kind of the becoming an adult at Vanderbilt that experience in itself was worth so much more than than money in, in my opinion and once once I did end up signing in 2015 and and entering 
into a minor league organization, I remember thinking to myself, if I had signed as an 18-year-old and I was in this organization, how would I be surviving, right? When you're a college guy and you get into a minor league system, you're prepared. You're, you're, you're grown up. You have life experience. You know how to live on your own. You know what you need to be ready to play. You just are so much more mature. If I had signed out of high school, even though I was a mature 18-year-old, all of a sudden you get dropped into a situation where you're in the middle of a business, number one, and number two, you're with guys that are in their 20s, right? Mid-20s. It just would have been such an unbelievable learning curve for me. And then on top of all that, you have to perform, you know, and again, I I just, going to college was, was the best thing and, and I can't imagine any other route. There is also the minor league lifestyle, you know, to deal with, and we'll get to that in a moment. But your first year, your, your freshman year at Vandy, you joined a team that included, uh, see, Walker Bueller, Dansby Swanson, Mike Yastrzemski, Tony Kemp, Carson Fulmer, Tyler Beatty. That's six names right there. That's just incredible talent. How did that talent really compare to what you saw in the low minors? Those guys are so good. I mean, you don't really see talent like that until you get to double A. When you think about it, right, at Vanderbilt, one of the reasons we were so good and our players were were so good is because we're playing against each other every single day. Tim Corbin at Vanderbilt, he believes that when you're developing, right, you have to play to develop. And when you're playing against the best players in the country every single day and you know, in a Monday scrimmage, I'm facing Walker Bueller. In a Tuesday scrimmage, I'm facing Carson Fulmer. In a Wednesday scrimmage, I'm facing Tyler Beatty. You think about how much better you get and, and you either adapt and make adjustments and, and learn how to hit those guys or you don't make it at Vandy. So when you're seeing those guys over and over and over again, literally for months and months and months, and then you play a, a different team, you're like, holy cow, these guys stink. <laughs> right? And they don't. They're, you play another team, they could be a really good team. But when you're playing against the best players in the country who turn into some of the best pitchers in the big leagues, and you're seeing that every single day, you know, you can imagine what, h- how you develop when you're seeing that every single day. And, and then when you see normal guys who might be good at other schools, you can understand how they don't look as good. Yeah, Brian Reynolds has, of course, gone on to become a, a great big leaguer. He was one of your teammates in your sophomore and junior years. You know, your junior year, of course, being your draft year. I took a look at the stats. You and Brian both hit around 320 that year. You out-homered him 15-5. to You know, Dansby Swanson also hit 15. That was the most on the team. So... What were your draft expectations that summer coming off of such a strong season? Well, you know, the the cool thing about Vandy is there really aren't any egos. And and the the real goal there which I think is so lost amongst so many other programs is it's not about you. It's not about individual accolades. It's about the team and it's about winning baseball games. One of the best things that Tim Corbin does at Vandy is he totally and completely insulates his players from everything that's happening on the exterior of that facility. So draft, 
media, whatever it is, he does an incredible job of totally isolating his group of guys. And what that does is it allows for the players to focus on one goal. There really, there really isn't a lot of things that are happening in the outer world that drag guys focus away from Vanderbilt baseball. And because of that, you're always focused on the team. You're always focused on winning. And a byproduct of that is you're not really thinking about the draft. You're not really thinking about next year. You're not really thinking about five years down the road. All you're doing is you're thinking about that day. You're thinking about beating the team that you're playing that day. You're thinking about getting better and and doing what you need to do to prepare to win that weekend. So you're really not expecting anything. I, I mean, you're not thinking about it. It's kind of out of sight, out of, ma- out of mind until it happens. And then, boom, you get drafted. As true as that may be, you're still human. You know, you're looking at your future. You are going to have scouts talking to you. You did go in the third round, you know, by the Nationals. You had to have been aware of, well, might the Cubs be interested again? You grew up, or not, maybe not grew up, you went to your high school, was a few miles from Fenway Park. You had to have been thinking, are the Red Sox interested? Right, right. And, you know, uh, when I was drafted by the Cubs in 2012, I remember talking to Theo Epstein, and he was great. I, I had gotten pretty close with a lot of the Red Sox front office through workouts as a senior in high school. But again, once you leave that, right? I mean, you think about all the the good relationships, the great relationships that I had with with scouts up north, whether it be Ray Fagnett, Matt High, Dennis Sheehan, guys who were were legends up north uh, in the scouting game. As soon as I went down to Nashville, those guys didn't cover those areas anymore. So right you you, be, you go from this huge fish which i was in a little pond up in up in you know boston down to nashville playing in the sec with the, some of the best players in the in the country right and then you're around all these scouts that you don't know you have no relationships with and then on top of that corbin is is totally insulating you and keeping you focused on what's really important which is winning baseball games the the exposure that I had to scouts, the exposure that I had to professional baseball when I was in college was unbelievably minimal. It really was. And I, that that is hard to, to believe. But my exposure to pro baseball as a senior in high school was unbelievable because everyone's talking about it at school. You're on the online every day. As much as you're focusing on a high school season, I mean, what what is really the importance of a high school season? It's easy for your attention to focus on the MLB draft and pro ball and this and that. But when I came down to Vandy, you're so set in a goal. And does the thought of pro ball creep into your mind? Of course it does, right? We're human, like you said. But you know that it's coming. I mean, for me, I was like, okay, well, you know, I know it's coming. It's not important. It doesn't matter. What's important to me is if I do get drafted in a couple weeks or next month or whenever June was in 2015, the way that Corbin had us think about it was, listen, that's inevitable. That's coming. You can't think about it. I want you guys to focus more on your time together as a unit here in college. That time is dwindling down. It's dwindling rapidly. Focus more on the limited amount of days that we're going to be spending together because you'll never get this back. Pro Bowl might be the next five years of your life. It might be the next 20 years of your life for some guys. 
but this right here is only going to be for the next 60 days or so. So guys didn't want to think about pro ball. And I was one of those guys. I wanted to just enjoy the time that I had at Vandy and, and, and enjoy the time with those guys that I would never be on a team with again. And speaking of pro ball and teams, I need to ask you about Juan Soto. I believe that the two of you were together for at least a short time in, in high A. Yeah, I, I played with Juan in 2018, and I've never played with anybody like him in my life. He is, without a doubt, the most talented hitter I've ever seen. He's a freak. Whether it's his front toss routine or his early work routine, his batting practice, everything that guy does is just different. He's never working on mechanics. He gets in the cage. He does one drill, and then he does his flips. He does not miss hit anything in BP. He does not miss hit anything in, in, in front toss in early work. The guy is not human. <laughs> and on top of that, he's like the greatest guy. He really is. He's incredibly kind. He's soft-spoken. He's funny. He is an awesome, awesome teammate. And, you know, even though he's what I personally think is the most talented hitter in baseball, he is an incredible human being and, and, and a fantastic teammate. Yeah, growing up in New England, you had a chance to hit with a great hitter in, in high school. I believe that Nomar Garcia Para and you used to hit together. Yep, we did. Yeah, we did. What, what what is that experience like for a high school kid to be, you know, sharing, you know, to be getting batting tips from a guy like he? Well, you know, I grew up a humongous Red Sox fan, and Nomar was like my idol. I mean, I had signed Nomar jerseys on my wall. I had signed pictures on my walls. And then when I started hitting with Paul Rapoli, who who owns RBI Baseball in, in Foxborough, Mass., Paul and, and Nomar had played together in the minor leagues with the Red Sox, and, and they remained really close friends. So Nomar would always come up in the offseason season. And in the winter after he'd retired and, and we would hit, which was an incredible, incredible experience for me, basically hitting with with one of my favorite players ever um, and just learning kind of how he approached hitting and, and hearing his thoughts. And as much as we hit together, just listening to him talk, listening to his philosophies on hitting, you know, as a, as a 17, 16, 18 year old kid was was unbelievable. Yeah, let's jump right to the minor league experience. You know, counting the 2020 COVID season, you know, the non-season, you've been in the minors for, I believe, seven years. So what is that experience like for, you know, basically just the whole lifestyle and how much do you really feel that should be changing, needs to change? Well, David, you know, I've never, I've never held my tongue when it comes to the minor league experience. I mean, the lifestyle sucks. And that's, I don't think, a secret to anybody. Never mind coming off of Vanderbilt, right, where you're treated like an absolute king all the time. You go from staying in five-star hotels and playing in front of 20,000 people on a weekend to, you know, my first assignment in 2015 when I signed was Auburn, New York, where we were lucky if we had 250 people at a game, you know, and we're staying in really, really rough hotels. And and it's a, it, it's a shock. I mean, I went from 2015, my last game in college, we were playing in front of 35,000 at TD Ameritrade in Omaha, playing for a national championship where the game mattered, right? There was so much on the line. There was so much at stake. And then, you know, you blink and you're, you're in minor league baseball and nobody cares about the wins or losses. The facilities are bad. 
and you're playing in front of nobody. So it was definitely, definitely different, definitely a, uh, a shock and, and definitely hard to get used to, you know, it's, it's not very hard to, to get up for games, to get excited for games when you're playing in front of 20,000 people and you're playing a rivalry game between, you know, University of Tennessee or South Carolina or LSU. It's easy to get up for those games. It's easy to get fired up and get excited. It's not as easy when you are in upstate New York or up, you know, middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, and you're, you're, you're showing up to the ballpark at noon for a seven o'clock game. And there's, you know, a hundred tickets sold in a stadium that holds 10,000. So I had to learn how to get myself up for games and, and, and try to make the games important because individually they were important, but collectively they weren't. And that was something that I really wasn't used to. And you were also playing for a relative pittance as far as salary goes. Right, right. And, and you know, for guys that sign in the first couple rounds who, who get signing bonuses that are, that are good, th- that doesn't matter as much, right? But for the guys who are later round signs, middle round signs, and then are making, you know, 1500 bucks a month, I mean, that's criminal. How is that? How is that possible? How are we in a, in a situation where we're at the field for literally 10 hours a day and you break that down hourly, it's, you know, it's, it's dollars an hour. It's insane. It's crazy. You, you have no leverage. You, you can't get out of the contract. I mean, David, think about it. Name me another profession. Name me, name me another job occupation today where you, your job, you're signed into a contract for seven years with, with no pay escalation where you can't leave and you have virtually no rights. I mean, it's crazy. We're, 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 you know, we're decades and decades and decades behind so many things in the minor leagues. And, 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 you know, some of that's changing now thanks to people like Harry uh, Marino and uh, advocate, advocate groups like the Advocates for Minor Leaguers. Thankfully, something is starting to slightly change, but even change is happening at a snail's pace. That is moving in the right direction, but of course, very incrementally. Do you see the Players Association starting to work a little harder for minor leaguers? I I certainly would think that you believe that they should. I definitely believe that they should, but you know, let's let's be you know, let's call a spade a spade here. the The reality is they don't care. They don't care about minor leaguers. Look at the big leagues are in a lockout right now, right? They, they can't even get their own stuff together. They have so much on their plate as it is. Players in the, in the major leagues are being taken advantage of by owners right now as it is. I don't blame the, the players association at all for not having a, you know, a, a larger role in, in, in minor league rights because the reality is as bad as minor league players get screwed, right? There are some serious issues with with the major leagues too, and as as great as it would be for for the players union, the major league players union to you know to really stick their neck out for the minor league guys, the reality is the minor league players need a union because minor league rights will never be more important to a major league union than major league rights. So even if they do stick up for for the minor league players minor league players will never take precedence, right? The only way that that will ever change is if minor league baseball has their own players union, in my opinion. 
And a lot of minor league players or prospective minor league players lost an opportunity too when MLB got rid of 40 affiliated teams. You started out in the New York Penn League. That no longer exists. You know, what are your thoughts on that change? Well, you know, this is a this is a pretty controversial topic, David, for a few reasons. And I'll tell you I'll tell you what I think about it. Number 1, eliminating baseball teams is is bad, right? It hurts it hurts local economies that give jobs to people. It gives less players the opportunity to play. But, you know, on the other side of that, more teams, more affiliates gives organizations more power. And it does that because if you have two more teams per organization, right? That's 35 more players per team roughly. So that's another 70 players that teams have ownership rights over. So the more players that teams have ownership rights over, the more options they have. And with the way that the current pay setup is, teams are paying pennies for players. And it just gives teams more leverage, right? More players, more opportunity for teams to, to, to pick and choose who they want and less leverage for players. So, you know, I, I don't mind it personally. I, I, I think the less teams, the better. I would rather have less players with more opportunity than more players with less opportunity. And I know that a lot of people disagree with that and that might not be the most favorable opinion, but being in it for so long, I would rather less teams, less players, and those players that are in it, those players that are in affiliated baseball have a greater shot to get to the big leagues than, say, you know, adding two more teams, adding 70 more players, and giving, you know, giving the players in affiliated organizations less of an opportunity to get to the big leagues. Do you feel, Rhett, that more players will be going forward doing the college route? And do you think development at some of the better schools may actually even be better than it has been in the lower minors? I hope so, David. I mean, you know, w w with the new rules in the NCAA and paying players and um, with the with the ever-growing popularity of social media, I think that uh, colleges will continue to have more reach. Uh, more reach, more money, better facilities for players, w which is all good, right? I, I hope more players go to college because developing in a minor league system as an 18, 19, 20-year-old kid is nothing compared to developing at a college, 18, 19, 20. You, you think about the experiences that you have in college and, and their experiences that you'll remember for the rest of your life. In pro ball, I remember being in pro ball playing with as a as a 22 as a 23 year old and playing with guys who were 18 19 and you know it, it's not it's not glamorous it's 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 not the big leagues it's you know it's no it's no name towns it's no fans it's you know it's nothing special and I remember playing with those 18 19 year olds and thinking about where I was when I was 18, 19, you know, playing in front of 30,000 in Omaha, winning a national championship, playing in front of, you know, 17, 18,000 on a Friday night at Arkansas. And, and it's like, where would, where would you rather be playing? Where would you rather develop? And with, with, as college baseball continues to, to get more and more popular, it's only going to benefit college players more. So I see this thing as it as it continues on uh, on trending upward that it will actually be a better decision 
for players to go to college. I've always felt that way. And, and I think that it's going to be even more so as we move forward here. And you have mentioned opportunity a few times in the last few minutes. Let's close with that. You've been, as I've said, in the minors uh, for seven years. You put up so-so numbers in AA this past summer, and you are now a minor league free agent. Looking into your crystal ball, what do you see as your future? You know, David, I, I don't know. It's one of those things where you know, you, you've kind of, you, you've, you've built it, right? I mean, over the past seven years, uh, the numbers I've put up are the numbers I've put up. I can't change them now. And, you know, the, the landscape right now is tricky. I mean, it's very strange with, with the way that the lockout is. It's, it's affecting signings for everybody. Even though minor leaguers can sign right now, major league teams don't know what they need for depth because they don't know what major league players are going to be available because they can't sign anybody. You know, and uh, the old saying goes, you know what, you know, it, 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 it drips downhill. So the minor league guys, minor league free agents are being affected by the lockout as well. Even though it doesn't directly impact us, it is. So, you know, there's there's really not much you can do. I mean, you're, you're in a no leverage situation similar to, to, to what I've been in and, and minor leaguers like myself have been in these no leverage situations for, for years and years. And it's one of those things where you just have to wait and, and, and hope that you get a phone call and, you know, that you get a chance with another team. Being with one team for, for the past seven years you can imagine how 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 much I want to try and 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 experience another organization and, and see how it how it works with another organization. I have nothing but respect for the Nationals and and I loved my time there. But at the same time, after seven years, just like anything, you know, it's time to move on and and you want to see what it's like on the other side of the fence. And being just twenty seven years old, you certainly have many more years to play baseball if the right opportunity comes and you perform. But in the not too distant future, you know, there will be no more baseball. Have you spent much time thinking about life after baseball? Yeah, David, you know, it's funny you ask that because when I first started playing minor league baseball, I started to understand the business of it. And the more I started to understand the business, the more I started to understand that so much of it comes down to, to opportunity and luck and the right things happening in front of you. And so much of it is out of your control. And, you know, being a business major at Vanderbilt and being around business, both my parents are entrepreneurs, being around that growing up, you know, my parents have made their own luck. So being around that and seeing a situation in minor league baseball where so much of your future is predicated on, on, on luck and things that, that are out of your control, I decided to, you know, not hedge myself, but, but use my time as efficiently as possible. So I'd started a couple companies while I was playing professional baseball, things that I've continued to do over COVID and things that I continue to do now. So, you know, after baseball, um, I'm not worried about that. I, I want to play baseball and, and capitalize on, on still being 27 years old and, and playing the game that I love for as long as I can. But when I am done playing, I, I don't worry about my future and I don't worry about, um, you know, myself. And what are the businesses that you have started? So I've, I've been heavily focused on real estate since 2017. I have, I've purchased dozens and dozens and dozens of properties. I've built rental portfolios that I've sold. I've started a coaching and mentorship real estate company. 
and I continue to, to buy rental properties and flip properties all over the country. And what that's done is it's, it's allowed for me to have an outlet, right? I don't play video games. I, I don't waste time on my phone. I, I want to take advantage of my time and my age. And, you know, time is one thing that we don't get back. So 30 years, 40 years from now, I don't want to look back and say, wow, I could have been building something great, but instead I was sitting at home playing Fortnite or playing Call of Duty. I refuse to do that. So I took all my time and, you know, minor league baseball, you have so much time. There's so much downtime. You have off seasons where you're not doing anything for five months except training, but you're not getting paid. You know, you're not getting paid for five months in the off season. I don't understand how guys do it. You know, and I refuse to do it. So, you know, I created businesses and I bought property and, you know, I created things that, that could last me a lifetime and, and all the while learning about business and learning about real life business so that when my career did end, it would be a smooth transition for me. You know, I'm in the process of, of getting my builder's license right now in Nashville where my, my next venture will be, will be building, you know, custom homes in Nashville. So, I'm trying to take this thing full circle and it's been a great outlet for me to be able to to put time and energy in and focus on when I'm not playing baseball and and be the most effective and, and get the most out of my time. So at the outset, when I introduced you, I probably should have uh, used the word entrepreneur as well as uh, <laughs> outfielder. Rhett, Rhett Wiseman is an outfielder slash entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, on that, I think we're already over time. Rhett, it's been great to have you on as a guest on Fangraphs Audio 10 years after I walked up to you at a uh, high school baseball field for the first time. Crazy. Hopefully we can do it again another 10. And who knows where any of us will be in 10 years. Unreal. <laughs> Unreal. Thanks again, Rhett. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangrass Audio. Thanks, David. This has been Fangrass Audio. Thank you to Buster Olney and Rhett Wiseman for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider telling a friend about it. It helps us out. Don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to stay up with everything we have going on, free to your inbox every weekday. Have a good weekend, be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next week.